From the Melanina Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona, this is Keeping Up with Public Health, Pandemic Response. In this episode, we round off our second season of Keeping Up with Public Health. We have invited back previous guests, Christopher Griba-Brown, Catherine Ellingson, and Joe Gerald to discuss, how did we get here? What lessons have we learned? And what can we change? Caitlin, take it away. Just starting off, the U.S. has now surpassed 5 million cases and 160,000 deaths. How have we come to where we are now and how has your work been impacted by everything? Yeah, so how do we get here? Wow, what a, a big question. You know, I think it was uh, one policy misstep after another. When we look back on this uh, and examine it, I think we're going to really be shocked at how few things we actually got right in our response. Um, we were slow. We made many errors. It took us forever to catch up. And then when we did catch up, we let it kind of slip through our fingers again, right? And um, when we compare how we've been able to uh, respond to this versus places like the European Union, uh, it's going to be real disappointing. They've, they've been able to do much better. And uh, so I think that's what we'll have to grapple with as public health experts is how did our preparedness not prepare us better to respond to this crisis? Um, and so some of it certainly is going to be political and policy, uh, but we just haven't done very good. Yeah, I, I think we've had, we, you know, we, we certainly will have a lot of lessons learned for this going, going forward. And the other question you asked is how, how has this affected our work? And I would just say all encompassing. For many of us in public health, this has become another full-time job that is an 80 hour a week full-time job. It's not um, a minor addition to our day. It's become our entire day and weekends and vacations. So I think that, because I think all of us feel this driving, this is, you know, kind of like, this is what we've been preparing for, even if we didn't know it. Um, But also because of the missteps, we felt like we're constantly having to correct missteps, correct when things are going in directions that we think are not useful and then and then continually provide people with information to try and you know roll back bad decisions or decisions that could have been made in a different way so i feel like it's definitely been it's been an all-encompassing response for many of us and to the point where we are tired just like everybody else um, uh, you know, who have been working on this response. But I, but I do think that a lot of the, the reason it's been so draining is because of the missteps and because we're constantly trying to cor- course correct from the things that have happened. Yeah, I mean, and, and I would say that, you know, these these missteps are multifactorial. And I think we've seen, you know, decades of, of defunding of local public health, of defunding of preparedness programs. And I think we saw very early on that some of the sluggishness that my colleagues referred to was really um, this lack of an immediate federal response. So So we were behind on testing. One of the things that could have been done very quickly is our federal government could have, you know, tried to procure... PPE at a, you know, at massive, um, at, you know, just massive procurement of PPE that could have made it affordable and accessible to our, some more of our healthcare facilities. Um, and this, and this didn't happen. And so in, in my work with, with long-term care facilities, what we spent a lot of time doing 
um, in those you know initial weeks were trying to figure out where the strategic national stockpile, when's it gonna get here? Because our facilities were running out of personal protective equipment. When they finally got it, many of like their masks had expired in 2004. Many of our facilities quickly ran out of gowns. So trying to figure out how do we actually safely provide care? Um, how do we follow our, our infection prevention guidelines when we don't have the PPE? We have to reuse our own gowns. Um, and so we found ourselves a lot of times, instead of going to evidence-based guidance, referring to crisis-based strategies, which, which CDC now has, they, they have sort of a parallel category for, here are evidence-based recommendations, here's the best strategy when you're in a crisis. And it was remarkable to me just how many weeks we spent in that crisis phase. Um, there are more gowns available, but it's it's still, the, the PPE is, is still not as accessible as as it needs to be. So things have gotten better on that, but I think the duration of the that sort of dearth of personal protective equipment really, really had an impact, not only on the residents um, and the infection rates in these facilities, but also on the, the healthcare workers who felt like they couldn't do their jobs, protect themselves, protect their families and protect their, their residents, so. Yeah, Kate, since we're talking about uh, long-term care facilities, you know, one of the things in that's really struck Pima County hard were outbreaks early in the course uh, in these long-term care facilities and probably contributed in an important way to the case fatality rates that we saw early on. Uh, how have things changed uh, since then? Are we doing better? I think so. I mean, I so, you know, in terms of my own individual involvement, um, after the first major outbreak, I actually got a call from Pima County saying, you know, actually Kristen had recommended that I, that I work with Pima County and, and basically just heard the director say, we are, you know, in, in deep water here. Um, and it really, the, the first facility that was affected saw just tremendous, you know, transmission in their facility. This was sort of before there were published studies showing the role of asymptomatic transmission. So I think what, what really changed is the strategies in the beginning were monitoring residents for symptoms, right? Saying, okay, if you're symptomatic, we're gonna cohort you. Uh, we're gonna, you know, prioritize PPE. And um, you know what we realized is that there were a lot of people who, when they when they tested everyone in those initial facilities, there were a lot of folks who were um, infected but asymptomatic. And so those those people actually, in under our sort of old rules of doing symptom based infection prevention, would have been mixed in with the rest of the population. And so I think that's a big thing that's changed now is that in long term care facilities, as soon as there's a positive case. Um, we have, as a county, prioritized testing to everyone on those wings, every healthcare worker that's been exposed, because we know that, um, you know, they, they could be positive and asymptomatic, and that, that really led to sort of the wildfire spread in these first few facilities. And I'll springboard off of a couple of points that all of you have kind of met, and that's this journey that public health has kind of taken in, in the public's eye, where at first, it's like, okay, what do we do? And then they're told in the narrative, you know, how it's transmitted, uh, proper safety precautions that people should take. That's kind of changed over time, both with political influence and with with good intentions, like to prioritize PPE for uh, first responders and the people who actually uh, come into contact with high viral loads. But since it's changed over time, are how our understanding of how, how the virus is transmitted and then also how the population reacts to these certain things. Do you think that 
public health efforts are in a position to kind of redefine themselves or at least restress their importance? Or do you think that it's going to be a PR recovery for a little while? I think probably both, actually. I think that, you know, I, I, I constantly try to remind people that when I would be talking that this is a, a novel virus, which means it's new. And I think that it was only natural that information was going to change as we learned more. And I think that's, that was also part of the, the challenge is we were constantly chasing down in the early days, constantly reading articles, constantly trying to find studies that should we, you know, should we recommend MASH? Should we not? Should we, what about this study? What about that study? And I think we were trying to do our best to give evidence-based information, but there wasn't a lot of evidence. And so a lot of what we were providing information on was based on really what our experiences with other pathogens like SARS-CoV-1 and flu. And, and so we're trying to make kind of make recommendations based on that. And some of those recommendations were solid and some of those weren't because this is a different virus and it reacts differently. And so I, you know, it's been hard because you see at the federal response, you know, normally in something like this, we would have expected to see CDC out in front of this every single day. And because of the leadership or lack thereof that we have, CDC is completely behind the scenes, completely has been completely cut off at the knees. And I think that is actually one of the biggest tragedies in our country because CDC is, you know, for, you know, they might've made some missteps early on. They're still filled with a lot of brilliant public health professionals who care about what's going on and they want to be able to help and they're doing their best and they've really been kept from doing that in a lot of ways. So I do think that people have recognized the need for public health. I mean, certainly, you know, people didn't even know what epidemiology was and now, you know, half the people think they are epidemiologists, which is also its own problem, right? But I do think that we we do have a little bit of a PR problem in that, you know, there, the nuance of what we knew early on wasn't coming through. It was just, here's what we think, given the information we know right now. And it was that given the information we know right now that kept getting cut off in the media. And, and so then when you would change your message, people thought it was because you were either lying to them or you didn't know what you were talking about initially. It's like, no, we were making the best decisions we were we could based on the information we had at the time. And so I, I hope that public health is able to kind of regain this. And I do actually think for the vast majority of people, I do think that people are grateful to have public health leadership and they appreciate the fact that we're all doing our best to try and keep people healthy and safe. Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, I can uh, agree with everything Christian just said. I would amplify uh, on one aspect, right? So there was a lot of changing recommendations early on. I mean, it's still uh, an issue, uh, and it highlights in many ways how different SARS-CoV-2 is from other recent outbreaks. You know, it, it uh, behaves much more like flu in that it has a high degree of infectivity or transmissibility, but at the same time, it, it many, many people don't have symptoms and they're not easily recognizable. And we couldn't rely on, on the traditional contact tracing, symptom-based um, interventions. And because our testing wasn't there, it really threw us for a tremendous loop. 
um, you know, because really the only thing that's happened in recent history that's been like this, you have to kind of go back to the 1918 influenza uh, pandemic, something that's touched so many aspects of our lives and has been widespread around the world. And so there's been a lot that's been forgotten um, between that time. And a lot of our responses were very um, rusty uh, and ill-conceived. And uh, some of the important lessons that we learned got lost um, to time. And, and so we played a little bit of a catch-up game um, with this virus. And, and this virus is a tough, tough um, adversary. Just, just one, you know, just to, to piggyback on that a little bit. I mean, I think that the virus is is so difficult because of some of the, the properties that that Joe referred to. And I think in this highly politicized atmosphere, there's a lot of, you know, wanting to kind of blame and make it black and white. And, you know, it's the, the response really requires us to be, you know, nimble to change and to consider nuance and context. And I think that's something that um, has been really difficult in, in the sort of highly politicized atmosphere that we're in. And then in terms of kind of the um, kind of rebranding of the importance of public health. I mean, I would say in, in my specific area, I'm you know really interested in in healthcare epidemiology, and I have to say that for you know for for decades, really, infection prevention in healthcare settings was seen as like a quality control issue for healthcare facilities to deal with. And I think um, what you know that's changed a bit in the past decade. It's become more of a public health issue. But I think that. Um, you know, these types of, this pandemic has reminded us that, you know, we're, we sort of all have a, a shared fate when it comes to infectious disease, including, you know, what goes on in healthcare settings affects the public. And so many of these kinds of, um, you know, infections happening in healthcare settings are now considered public health issues instead of private industry issues. And I, I hope that that will continue past the, the, as we, you know, get through this and on the other side of this outbreak. And I'd like to tie in something that is kind of taken center stage in news and, and see what your thoughts are on it, Kate. Schools are going to start again. And I know that you've been working with long-term care facilities and those pose their own problems, but you have a certain population that is vulnerable to transmissibility. Obviously, people in long-term care facilities may have comorbidities that makes it more dangerous in the, the near future, but to tie in what Kristen was saying with possible chronic outcomes. I mean, if we're okay with, I mean, I, I'm saying that facetiously, but if knowing that we're going to expose such a young population to this without knowing the possible outcomes of it, what what do you think are some major points that should be stressed on? Uh, because obviously it's not a good idea, and we'll we'll say that it's not a good idea, and every public health expert agrees that it's not a good idea for for children to return to school. But I'd like to to hear your what somebody coming from a long term care facility background would have to say would like to say to people, school administrators, and then also Kristen, what possible things are being missed. Yeah, and I'll just make a plug for, for Kristen, who's sort of spearheading a longitudinal cohort study to really explore the long-term outcomes associated with um, that following acute, acute infection. Um, and I guess I would say first with regards to school, yes, it's a different, it's a very different type of congregate setting. So some of there, there is some, there are some, you know, lessons learned from long-term care that we can, we can take and build on. But I would say first that I think in terms of a school administrator's position just first acknowledging as as public health professionals you know 
it is a very difficult decision to close down a school. And there are, if we think more broadly about the social determinants of health um, and really the, the impact of, of kids not being able to go to school, uh, especially kids for whom the school might be um, represent a, a safe place, a place where they can get food, um, and just sort of the broader issues of socialization. I think it's a, a really, really difficult decision. But I think in terms of, of you know, what, we, what we've learned about the virus from healthcare and long-term settings is um, you know, that it is so very easily transmissible. Um, it's transmissible before we, we often can detect it unless we have very you know, testing with a rapid turnaround time. And I, I think that, that returning to schools is, is something that, that should be taken seriously. And I know, you know others on this call, we, we actually have just recently been talking about you know, how, how administrators would be able to make that decision. What data should they be looking at? Um, and really, I think it's a combination of you know, what's going on in terms of transmission in the community, how capable is the healthcare infrastructure um, in terms of, of dealing with the, uh, if there's a lot of transmission, even among kids who, who might not be getting sick, there are going to be people sort of at the top of the iceberg who are going to require care and how, how able is our healthcare system or how, how capable are they to deal with that. And then of course there's the public health infrastructure. Do we have the capacity to, um, you know, test people rapidly should we detect a case? Um, so those are all things that sort of need to be put into the decision stew before, um, you know, deciding whether to reopen. And I guess I would just, I mean, so I agree with Kate that, you know, school closures are not an easy decision, right? Closing bars, that's an easy decision for us in public health, right? We're pretty all behind that, right? But, but closing schools is really difficult, and we all acknowledge that. And, um, <clears throat> and so because of the, you know, the benefits of being in school for most kids and frankly for most parents, right? So it's, it is not, um, it's, it's not an, an easy issue. You know, you asked about kind of long-term consequences um, with relation to kids. We really don't know in, in a lot of ways, you know, because of the way things closed down so quickly in, in the spring, we just, we have, even less data about kids than we do about adults. And I think, you know, it's clear that kids don't get as sick, which is, you know, one saving grace from, from this infection. I think if, if kiddos, especially really little ones, were getting hit as hard as really as elderly, I think we would be in a very, the conversation would be very different, would have been very different from the very beginning. Um, and, and so, but it doesn't mean that just because they're not as likely to have symptoms that when they do get sick, we just don't know yet what their long-term consequences, if any, there might be. Hopefully there aren't any, or they're very minimal. Um, and the other challenge is that kind of, as we alluded to at the very beginning, a lot of what politicians and decision makers are pointing to in the US is how schools have opened in other countries. And I guess I would counter with, well, other countries have done a lot better with this virus overall than we have done and using them as a benchmark to say, well, they opened schools safely. Well, their community transmission is also a 10th or a hundredth of what ours is. And so it's, you know, I think it's good to look at that as maybe lessons learned and, and as possibilities of where to get to, but but I don't, 
I, we simply cannot say that just because they open schools safely in a country that only has 100 cases in the whole country doesn't mean that we can safely open schools um, in the same degree. Yeah, one of the things I think it's um, kind of goes a little bit unrecognized is how close Arizona came to, to jumping off the cliff. Uh, we were only one or two weeks away from really struggling to care for all the patients that needed care. I mean, our hospitals and ICUs were literally full um, and um, had no more capacity. And what's kind of surprised me most recently is how quickly we've, kind, we've climbed down from that ledge and things have eased off. And it's not entirely clear what to, to attribute that to. You know, I think from my way of thinking, what's changed for me a lot has been how critical face masks appeared to be in uh, slowing the transmission. Uh, so I think certainly some of the things like closures of bars and, and um, gyms uh, had some contribution, but they were some of the later policy interventions um, in this uh, most recent um, surge. And so. Uh, I think that's going to be an important thing to think about and how those get introduced. You know, we've seen media coverage of what's happened in Georgia with their school reopening and the famous picture of the high school with a, a literally packed hallway and no one wearing masks. Uh, and I think most of us public health experts look at that with horror and go, how could you? That's, that's literally irresponsible. And then the other thing, you know, one of the things that we're hoping for uh, in this reentry and reopening of schools is that literally nothing happens. And so one of the real challenges with public health is when it works, nothing happens. And then everyone looks at you and go, why do we do this? And it was so nothing would happen. And, um, you know, that's a, the reward on that somehow just is not the same as when you reverse it. And, you know, when there's a crisis going on, everybody's willing to pitch in and it's a lot easier to convince folks. Um, and it's the real public health challenge is now that we're having some victories, how do we sustain them for the long haul? That makes me think about testing. So going back to schools, even opening up universities again, um, and trying to keep, whether it's teachers and staff or faculty, trying to keep up with testing. I read a New York Times article the other day discussing the need for using the antigen tests that are faster return, even though they maybe have more false negatives, which you know, again, thinking about this trust that the general population has with the public health workforce right now and how using these less accurate tests could do in that terms, but the PCR tests, you think about how they're taking days or weeks to get results. And, you know, if you're getting results back in three weeks at that time, people are like, I don't even care about my results. What do you all think about the different types of tests? Well, um, before I get into the different tests, I think that I think one of the things that maybe wasn't as clear at the beginning and has become abundantly clear now is how extremely important testing is for this entire public health response. It really is the foundation to be able to respond to this virus. And, and that gets back to what Kay was saying is big part of that's because we have so much asymptomatic um, cases and transmission, but that's really where I think the, the federal response fell down uh, to a, that had the biggest impact is that we had not enough testing. The testing results were, you know, maybe not 
um, didn't have the sensitivity and specificity that would be ideal right away. But really it was that delay in one, people being able to get a test when they needed it and having to wait a day or week or three days or a week before they could even get an appointment. And then this res getting results back, you know, two weeks later, as you said, at that point, the person is, you know, they've, they've recovered at that point or not, but they have, you know, they're long past the area where they would be infectious. And for many of us, you know, if I was sick and I got tested, I would, you know, many of us would stay in quarantine regardless, right? But, but a lot of people don't have that option. They had to continue to go to work. If they don't have a positive test to, to point to, they were gonna have to continue to go to work or they were gonna choose to continue to, to interact in the world. And so testing and testing delays really were one of the biggest kind of pitfalls that we fell into. And, and we've been kind of climbing out of that ever since, um, in my opinion. You know, it's, I would say, you know, we also encountered this, this huge trade-off between ramping up testing and being able to process them quickly. So we even saw this with different companies who would say, oh, hey, I can turn around results in 48 hours. Um, then all of a sudden the county, you know, for example, would say, okay, you know, you're going to be testing in our long-term care facilities and we're going to have some testing in these neighborhoods. Um, and all of a sudden that 48 hours would turn into seven days or 14 days. And so I think part of it is being in sort of uncharted territory with just being able to scale up so quickly. Um, and so I think, you know, Caitlin, you mentioned the antigen test, which really offers the, the potential for doing, you know, massive amounts of testing with that quick turnaround time. And so now the trade-off is, well, how do you, how do you evaluate the trade-off of that obvious huge benefit against the potential loss of sensitivity, which you had talked about there being more false negatives. Um, and so, you know, I would agree with, with, with Kristen and, and you that the utility of having a fast turnaround is, is, is just, it's hard to, to overemphasize it. It's really, really important because from that stems all the, you know, contact tracing and ability to isolate. Um, but, um, but also the, with, with these rapid antigen tests, um, you can do them serially. So if you're talking about, um, for example, even in long-term care, the now the CDC recommendation is to test, test staff and residents every three to seven days. Well, there's no way you can do that if your turnaround time is you know, 14 days, it's impossible. But with these types of antigen tests, even with the lower sensitivity, the idea is if you're doing them often enough, you can, you can make up for that in terms of the overall benefit of testing. And so that's, that's where some of that promise lies. And it's really new, it's just being rolled out. You know, right now these machines are arriving at skilled nursing facilities all over the country uh, last week, this week. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I, I agree with all the comments here. and would only um, add that the other kind of consideration is if we hadn't let the virus um, uh, an outbreak get out of control, we would have had more relative testing capacity, right? So there, there are two kind of factors. How many tests in a day can we do? The other is how many people need to be tested in a day. And what really hampered our testing response is that as we were ramping up testing, the growth in cases was increasing even faster. And so, um, you know, I think it, there was a real misstep there in uh, mid-May where we reopened up and said that we were ready, um, kind of thinking some really optimistic scenarios and it didn't turn out to be true. And so 
we've always been a step or two behind in our public health response from the very beginning. We've never uh, been able to catch up um, to this. And uh, so there's, you know, it's an important interplay between control of the virus and these kind of community-wide public health restrictions and trying to think about this at an individual level and can identify a case, trace their contacts to isolation and quarantine. You know, they, they really are right hand, left hand, and they work together. And, and Dr. Gerald, uh, um, maybe you're already going in this direction. How do you think we can get that confidence, get that buy-in from the community? I, I know that you are involved in modeling and in a previous episode, you spoke about modeling and uh, I know people didn't listen to that and we don't have to discuss modeling right now, but do you think getting some some wins because people don't know who to believe, but I think people may begin to to buy into what public health messaging is if it's starting to be seen as reliable. How can we start to sell that reliability? Yeah, so I'm going to uh, answer your question and then answer my own. Okay. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, uh, the modeling has been a disaster uh, around COVID. I think, in fact, uh, the modeling community may have done themselves more harm than good. Yeah, I think it's going to it's taken a real reputational hit because uh, we've demonstrated that we can't really predict the future very well uh, at all. And I think um, we probably set unrealistic expectations on how well we could do that. Uh, and then we didn't deliver. And that was a real uh, problem. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of those life game changers um, and, and for students. And it's going to be really interesting to see how their careers play out differently because they've been exposed to this um, life altering um, public health emergency and crisis. I can remember when I was a uh, medical student, um, the, the big crisis, public health crisis at the moment was HIV infection. And, and we were just beginning to understand um, what caused it how it transmitted, what we needed to do to protect not only patients, but healthcare workers and, and things. Like that. And it really led to a, a bunch of really important and meaningful changes in healthcare practices and use of personal protective equipment, and just how we thought about patients with problems like that. And so I don't know that we've actually learned the lessons of what's going to happen from this um, COVID-19 outbreak, um, but I'm optimistic that we're going to um, learn similar lessons and be able to apply them um, in the future. You know, because now when we think about HIV disease, um, I mean, so it's clearly still a very important and devastating diagnosis, but it's nothing like it was um, uh, 30 years ago. And so hopefully, much sooner than that, COVID um, is going to kind of fade from importance, at least I hope so. And I think it's going to be this generation of students and those early career professionals when this is their first experience. I think they're going to lead the way in helping us think our way um, to do this differently and better. So kind of changing topics here, back to community buy-in. The media is all about masks right now. I know Arizona, our orders in place about mask use, and that's kind of when Arizona was the hot spot. And I recently, not that I wanted to do this during a pandemic, but did a cross-country car ride in New Mexico along the interstates. Their messaging was, you know, mask up, let's send our kids to school, which I thought was incredible. And then I got to Nebraska and right over the 
border, I didn't see a single mask. And now Omaha is becoming this new hotspot. And then getting to Illinois, everybody's wearing masks, even walking, a single person walking their dogs. How can we get this buy-in from various communities? You know, thinking about Nebraska, they've been kind of in the larger geographical state, but there's fewer, a smaller population. Is it just, it hasn't hit there? And so, you know, we have more buy-in once people actually see it, or how do you think we can help move, move on from here? That's such a tricky question. And, and I had, you know, um, a similar experience recently with, with a, a road trip and, and just seeing the, the differences in mask use. And I think it, um, you're right that it, it kind of, it, it makes sense that it correlates with, with areas that maybe haven't, haven't seen directly the consequences of, um, you know, not adhering to the public health recommendations. And it kind of makes me think about some of the struggles we have with, um, you know, adherence to, to vaccines and, and just the fact that, that many parents nowadays are much more, um, you know, the, the issue of, of autism is much more emotionally salient than polio, you know? And so even though we know that there's no evidence that vaccines cause autism, there's just, it's, you know, I think when people aren't directly experiencing something, it's, it's difficult to take it seriously. And so, um, you know, I guess some of the lessons we've learned from, from, you know, the vaccine public health issue is that sometimes it's, it's not always um, just coming back with, with data and admonitions and, and blaming people for doing the wrong thing. It's trying to, you know, acknowledge why people might not be doing the right thing. Um, and try to, to understand kind of the, the human biases and, and how to get around them. And I just don't have a great answer for that. But, um, but I think to the extent that people can, you know, try to recognize, um, you know, again, I come back to data because I'm a public health person, but just the, the potential impact that it could have on a loved one, you know, I've kind of seen that change some minds when you think about people in your immediate um, surroundings who are vulnerable, I think, um, you know, people telling their stories and getting them out there so it's more personalized. It's not just coming from, it's not a public health recommendation coming from statistics, which we all love, but I think the everyday person is, is looking for something or, or will be more responsive to something that um, like feels more um, in line with their sort of worldviews and the things that they care about. So it's difficult, it's really tricky. <laughs> And I think we're going we're gonna to see the vaccine issue come up again too, right? Because as soon as we have a vaccine, we don't even have a vaccine yet. And people are already banging that drum of anti-vaccine, you know, nonsense. So, so it's, we constantly have, have that challenge. And as Joe pointed out earlier, we are a victim of our own success, right? So when public health works well, we're in the background and nobody really sees it or thinks about it. And it's just life is good. And it's not until things go wrong that people start to recognize the fact that, that, oh, maybe this is something we, we need to have. So I think that we are going to continue to have these challenges, but, and I've, I've said that um, earlier in this um, pandemic as well as for many people until they, personally know somebody who is sick, it's just not going to, to be as real to them. And so I think it is good when people, you know, that there's a lot of negatives with social media with this outbreak. And there's a lot of misinformation that's being spread through social media. But some of the things I think that 
have been positive is when people share their personal stories about, you know, some 20 year old who goes to a party and thinks that they're invincible and then ends up in the ICU and is telling their story or their family member is telling their story. Um, I think it makes it, some of those things, they resonate with people in ways that just some, you know, somebody talking about risk factors and, and demographics on, is just not going to. And, and so I'm, I hope that more people speak out as, as much as that, that means more people get sick, so we don't want that. But, and I, and I also think that the, partisanship and the politics of this, you know, those of us who are in public health, I mean, we all, you know, we all knew that this, we were in a hyper-political and hyper-partisan place right now in our country. But I think even those of us in public health, especially, were sadly shocked by how, how political this became. And for something that was so, you know, some of the stuff that was just so, what would presumably be so innocuous, you know, like how does, wearing a mask become an infringement on your quote-unquote civil rights and you know we require that people wear pants in public i don't understand why you know and that's not actually going to hurt anyone else if somebody goes out without pants on you might be offended but you're not actually going to be physically harmed by that whereas you could be physically harmed by other people not wearing a mask and yet somehow that became this social stigma in certain areas and and to the point where people are physically fighting over it. So that I think was a big disappointment in public health is that we understand, I understand that the narrative on masks was not ruled out well and we didn't have a lot of information. But now that we do, the fact that it's still holding on to this is, is just really frustrating because it's like, can we just move on? Can we just, everybody wear a mask. Now let's move on to other problems that we have to deal with. So I, I do think that, that the partisanship and the um, politi politicalization of things has been very frustrating to watch. Yeah, I'd have to agree. And then we just add, you know, and it's something we have to put more attention and resources uh, behind because it's going to turn out these are likely to be the two most critical um, pieces in our public health response and getting past this crisis is, uh, consistent use of face mask and high adherence to vaccination. Um, without those two things, we're going to be stuck in this place for a long time. And so, uh, you know, it's going to take both thought leaders. But it's also, I think, going to take resources, I mean, dollars and cents to put to media, campaign, advertising. Uh, and then lastly, on what Kristen's saying, I mean, I think it's been a one of the huge failures has been leadership in uh, this response. I mean, public health leadership is always challenging because public health really occurs at the county and local level, but we've really missed out on um, leadership at the state and federal level too with um, clear guidance, consistency between the political message and the public health message. Uh, these things didn't necessarily have to be at odds, but they became at odds. Um, you know, so for example, um, in Arizona, we still lack a statewide face mask mandate, even though there's very compelling evidence that it was an important component that uh, is leading to our economic recovery in reduced cases. Uh, why is that um, leadership absent? Why did it have to fall to our counties and municipalities? Um, and so as a real missed opportunity, um, but we need to continue to pay attention to it because it's likely to be our way out. And so we've got to figure this important thing out. 
And as someone who was just in a un, unnamed Northern Arizona city this last week, I will tell you that if you don't have a mask mandate, you don't have mask wearing. You essentially, other than the people who are clearly from other man, other jurisdictions, right, and other places. So, you know, I mean, it would be great if you could just tell people to wear a mask, right? And just give them the information. There's a reason we have seatbelt laws, right? There's a reason we have motorcycle helmet laws is because people don't always act in their best interest. And, and so, and when the evidence is overwhelming that it makes a difference and people fought seatbelt laws for years. It was a hugely contentious issue for a very long time. We just don't remember it because we didn't really live through it. Now all of us, you know, you barely back out of the driveway without putting your seatbelt on, right? So it takes a long time to build that culture. And so sometimes before you can build that culture, you have to have certain rules and regulations in place to get people because sometimes those are the only things that are going to get people to where they need to be. Well, we have quickly passed our 45 minutes. <laughs> um, so I don't want to take up, we don't want to take up any more of your time. We really appreciate you taking out the time out of your busy, busy schedules. I think this was a great conversation and thoughtful and hopefully our listeners agree. Thanks for organizing and yeah, putting this all together. Yeah. All right. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This concludes season two of Keeping Up With Public Health. While the fight against COVID-19 still rages on, we would like to thank our public health workforce for rising to the occasion. To our first responders, nurses, doctors, caregivers, essential workers, you have saved millions of lives. We will never be able to thank you enough. To our public health workforce who have continued to fight the challenges we still face in addition to a global pandemic. We have not forgotten you. May you stay healthy, may you stay safe, and please wash your hands. Until next season, this is Eric Healy and Caitlin Meyer-Krauss signing off.